We are in the book of Daniel today. We're in the book of Daniel, and we are starting that for the very first time. We've been going through the book of Colossians. We just finished that, and now we're going to go through the book of Daniel. So, um, like I said, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up. We're going to, uh, in, in a general outline, what we're going to do is the first half of Daniel up until Easter, and the second half of Daniel after Easter, roughly a chapter at a time. Uh, sometimes we'll, we'll split a chapter in half and we'll look at both sides. But as you know, we preach through books of the Bible. We finish one, we go to the next. We try to alternate back and forth between Old and New Testament and genres. So you're seeing all of Scripture and how it all points to Christ. We don't want to avoid hard texts. That's why we pick through books, go through the books of the Bible. Uh, because all of Scripture is God-breathed and, and from God and profitable for training in righteousness, etc., as it says in 2 Timothy. So we go through the books of the Bible. It's the best thing for us. And it teaches you how to understand the Word of God. We, you, you should want to know what the Bible's all about. So anyway, we're going to look at Daniel chapter 1 today and go through it over the next course of, you know, 16, 14, 16 weeks. So uh, if you would, stand with me. We, we stand when we read. If you're not able, I understand. Uh, I'm going to read Daniel chapter 1. After I finish, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. You'll say, thanks be to God. So Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand and with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, that's king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both the, of the royal family and of the nobility, Useful without blemish, good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank, and they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah in the tribe of Judah, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he named Belshazzar. Hananiah, he named Shadrach. Mishael, he named Meshach. And Azari, he named Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs, Ashpenaz, to allow him to not to defy himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and drink, for why should we... Why should he see that you are in worse condition than the use of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward of the chief of the eunuchs, had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days and let, it, and let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. And let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them. And in this matter, he tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were in better and fatter in flesh than all the other used to eat the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine, and they were to drink uh, and gave them vegetables. As for the four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that as we look at it this morning, that Holy Spirit, you would come now in power, that you would help us see the relationship between, see and understand particular Israelites in exile in Babylon and how it relates to us, and that we would see and understand what it means for us now as Americans living in 2021, um, followers of Christ and how we can apply it to our lives. So we pray, Lord, that you would do this for us, that you would be kind to us this morning, and that ultimately um, you would help us see in the text how it all points to Christ. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So what I'm going to do is I'm going to intro the book of Daniel. Sometimes when you jump into an Old Testament book uh, and you're not familiar with the Old Testament, especially when you kind of dive in week one and you're like, where am I? Because the Old Testament covers a lot of history. uh, And so I'm going to do a little bit of an intro and then then we'll jump into chapter one. So first, uh, the book is written by the book of Daniel. There's no reason for us to not think it is. In chapter nine, verse two, and chapter 10, verse two, he, he actually talks about himself in the first person and I, Daniel. And so for those that love the word of God who hold to inerrancy, we would all say, okay, Daniel wrote this. You know, some of the commentators might go off on that, but not generally any of those that would hold to inerrancy. So Daniel calls himself the author in 9.2 and 10.2. And so we would say that Daniel is the author. Um, the events that are uh, being written of are taking place sometime around starting at like 605 B.C. moving forward. But Daniel wrote it around 530 B.C. As you know, B.C. counts backwards. And so he probably wrote it sometime around 530 B.C., about 500 years before Christ, is when he wrote it. And he's recounting from 605 to where he is all the events that took place. Um, the book of Daniel is, is, you know, pretty large, but it's got a few main themes to think about. And I'm going to tell you how that relates uh, into where they are in history. But some of the main themes that are going on in the book of Daniel are the sovereignty of God, uh, making sure that people see that God's in charge of everything. Even though they're in exile, God's in charge. God didn't lose control once the Babylonians came in and took their land from them. He's in charge. The last days, when we get to the second half of the book, and there's a lot of eschatological, apocalyptic writing, which is a major shift when you get to chapter 7. There's a big emphasis on the last days. There's another theme of what it's like to be in exile. They're in exile, living as exiles, knowing what's going on. And of course, the kingdom of God. There's a kingdom, but there's an ultimate kingdom of God. So these are some of the themes. Sovereignty of God, last days, being in exile, the kingdom of God. Now, the overall structure in Daniel is pretty interesting. There's really just two parts. Chapters 1 through 6 is narrative. Chapter 7 through 12 is the eschatological apocalyptic. You can see it written here. Um, narrative, narrative just means story. Um, Daniel wrote it, and Daniel lived a long life, but he has decided to tell us six specific chapter units of things that are going on in his life. And he, he has purpose behind that. As writers write, they're really smart. And as they write, they write with massive purpose. They don't just haphazardly count six fun stories. And I, yeah, that was fun. Let me tell you these things. Like he's doing something, which we're going to see in a second. Um, but interestingly enough, narrative, uh, chapters one through six is that. And then when you get to seven, there's a major shift in, and you, you can see it in the text where all of a sudden he's talking about eschatological apocalyptic. That just means like end times. So there's similarities when you're studying Revelation. It's, you have to understand that second half of Daniel as you're trying to get into understanding Revelation. You know, Everybody's all over the place on Revelation. We get, we get this difficult to understand. But the main thing I want you to see is this. So as he's doing that, uh, there's, there's a way he does the language as well. So chapter 1 is written in Hebrew. Chapters 2 through 7 is written in Aramaic. 
And then chapters 8 through 12 is back to Hebrew. And so you're like, that's interesting. Um, they're they're kind of in where they are in chapter 1, on in 2 through 6. So it's written in Aramaic. And then when you get to eschatological, he switches back to Hebrew because God's the king of all. But why is it in Aramaic whenever they're in, in, in Babylon? Well, there's a lot of theories. But I think maybe the most satisfying way to understand it is, uh, yeah, so if you go over to uh, Babylon, you could be wondering who's in charge. And so it's, I think it's written in the language of Aramaic to say, we're not, this isn't Hebrew, but God's still in charge over here. God's, the, God's in charge of everything. And maybe that's why it's written in Aramaic. There's no way to know, but I want you to notice something with me. So if narrative is one through six, you would think that um, Hebrew or Aramaic would be one through six, but Aramaic would, would stop maybe at six, but it goes into seven. It goes into seven where the eschatological part starts uh, over here. So you can see seven kind of shares something with the front part of, of being written in Aramaic, but also shares what's written in the back part that is eschatological. That's on purpose to help us see, as Chris normally talks about kind of a chiastic structure or the book's written kind of like a mountain. You get chapter one, brings you to chapter seven, and it brings you back down to chapter 12. Whenever you have these, these mountaintop things in chapters, it's trying to help you see, hey, chapter 7 is really special. Chapter 7, as a matter of fact, when you get to the middle of chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where that's what's on the video, this messianic message about the Son of God, it's super, super special. So that's what's going on as you read this. Um, chapter 7 is written in such a way that helps you see how important it is. Um, now, not only does he write the entire book pointing to chapter 7, pointing to Jesus. But even in the narrative in chapters 2 through 6, he has different patterns as he's going to arrange chapters 2 through 6. Uh, and I want you to see these things because here's the main thing I want you to see. Like when authors write the Bible, they're not just haphazardly sketching down stuff. These guys are geniuses. And Second Peter one twenty one tells us that they're carried along by the Holy Spirit. So I just want you to, in one little glance, see how... Uh, multifaceted are the themes that, that the writers are doing. Hat tip to Dale Ralph Davis as he's trying to help us see just in two through seven. So the chiastic pattern, that's like the mountaintop. You know, you start with two and seven and they're similar. And then you go to what, three and six and they're similar. And four and five had this kind of unique, kind of important part. So if you're looking at the chiastic patterns, you can see visions of four, deliverance from three, boom, divine discipline of a king. So that's the chiastic pattern. If you don't feel like you need to write this, if you want it, just tell me. I'll email it. But that's not just one pattern, but there's also an ABC pattern. You can go ahead and put that up for us as well. And you can see what's going on here. Tell, interpret, rescue rules. Show, interpret, rescue, save, dominion. Like, so we're bringing out to four and seven and how they're super important. Not just four and five, but also four and seven. And there's even one last little pairing pattern where two and three to go together, four and five go together, six and seven, where the rule of Babylon, the proud king, and fidelity. Like, that's just a genius that wrote this book. And he's trying to help you see all of these things to know that these guys that write these books, they are, one of my seminary professors, he would always say, he wouldn't say he writes his books. He would say he's making his book. So he's writing it, but he's also making it into a literary structure that helps you see, I'm emphasizing so many things. Only geniuses that are carried along by the Holy Spirit can do that, which makes you think, okay, this is a pretty awesome book. God really wrote this book. So I just wanted to help you see that. Now, what's going on? When you drop into, parachute into a book, sometimes you want to ask yourself, okay, what's going on here in the Old Testament? So what's going on in Israel at this time, at this particular time? So what I'm going to try to do is give a little bit of Old Testament 
very short history to let us to let us know what's going on here. So let's start in Genesis. In the beginning, I'm just kidding. But I do want to start in Genesis at Abraham. So at Abraham, you know, you're all through the flood and you have Abraham and God just comes to Abraham and he says, I want to make you the father of all my nations. And so to kind of fast forward through the story, uh, eventually Abraham's descendants turn into 12 tribes, the 12 sons of, of Israel. And so eventually those 12 sons become 12 tribes and you've got 10, they come into their promised land and you've got 12 tribes um, and they're a united monarchy. Eventually they're going to have a king. Saul will be the first king, but you've got 12 kingdoms or 12 tribes, 10 are to the north in Israel and two are to the south to Judah. But they are a united kingdom with one king, starting with Saul, then going to David and then going to Solomon. After Solomon, we went through the kings a while back. You begin to see um, right after Solomon is when the kingdom split. You've got 10 to the north and two to the south. And then there's two kingdoms. And eventually, as we went through the kings, we see uh, following God, bad, mostly bad. And eventually other countries, because they, those kingdoms aren't in south, lose their, lose their land and are kicked out. That's where we're joining in. We're joining in into the south in Judah where what we see is this is post-monarchy. This is whenever the whole kingdom's over and they just had single kingdoms, single kings in those places. In 605, the king of Babylon comes into the south in Judah. He descends into Jerusalem and he takes over, uh, takes over the land to the south, Judah, takes these particular people, ships them off to Babylon and sets up his own kind of kingdom in there. But he sends them over to Babylon where he's from and so what we're doing is we're joining the story of Dan- Daniel and his people in Babylon. He's going to spend 70 years there or so in exile, basically his entire lifetime. Uh, and so that's what's going on. It's towards the end of the Old Testament history in 605 where the king of Babylon descends into Judah. Um, in 586 is the destruction of the temple. So um, what we're looking at is the end of a lot of the, well, the end of the monarchy in Israel the end of what would be a theocracy. This is where God's in charge of the government uh, as well, but not just, not just the uh, people, but also the government. That's all over as well. So what does this book kind of teach us that as a whole? What we're looking at is where the people of Israel are now not in their own land anymore, but they're in exile. They're not in their land anymore. They're in exile. They've been shipped out because of disobedience and they're living in exile and they have to learn to live now as exiles. Have to learn to live in a place that's not their home. And so they have to trust God. Aren't we, as followers of Christ, tasked with the same thing? We have to learn to live in exile in a place that is not our home. That's what's going on with us now. Just like they're in exile and they're not in home, we also are in exile. If you don't think of yourself in exile, you ought to. Um, This world is not what we were created for Uh, We should not be comfortable here as Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 tells us that our citizenship is in heaven. And so we're all exiles here right now. But just like God's in control of what's going on in Babylon, ultimately he's the king. God is the king here. No matter what's going on in our country at all, God's still the king here. But God's still in control. And so if that's the case and we're learning to live as exiles, Sinclair Ferguson says this, Our own contribution to the ongoing kind of history of what's going on in man to history depends on our answer to this particular question. Am I living for the city of God or am I living, you know, the city of Babylon? Or as he says, according to the uh, bylaws and city of, of destruction. That's where we are right now. So if you're comfortable in this world, I'm hoping as that we go through the book of Daniel, 
you become uncomfortable. If you're already uncomfortable, that's good. (laughs) And now let's learn how to live here because we should never be too comfortable in this particular land. So we're, they're living as exiles. There's a demonstration on how to live as exiles and it gives us great understanding of how to live as exiles here. So who is the boss of Daniel chapter one? God's the boss. God is in control. Now, if you have my title here, don't put that number one up yet. Just leave the title up. Um, God is in control of our missiological lives in exile. That's a big title, Fudd. What are you trying to say? This is what I mean. Number one, God is in control. Even though they're in exile, he's in control. But not only that, um, he's, in, he's in charge of their missiological lives. Missiological is just a fancy way to say missionary, right? Every one of you are missionaries. Well, Fudd, I don't live overseas. Okay. We're still all commanded to um, do the Great Commission to make disciples. And so we're all missionaries wherever we live. And God's not in charge, but he is. We're still commanded to live as missionaries. So God's totally in control of your entire life right now as a missionary while you live here in exile. There is a God in Babylon and there is a God in America. And whatever you think um, about who he is, we need to understand that it's not anybody else but God. It's not anybody else but Yahweh, the true God. And so Israel has been uprooted and their land's been taken over, as it says, besieged, and their theocracy is over. And now they are now subjects of Babylon. Uh, God even told them this day was coming. Before it happened in Isaiah chapter 39, he said, Behold, days are coming when all those in your house that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried off to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, um, whom, whom, you uh, whom you will father, will, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So it was told to them that this was going to happen. Uh, but even though they're in, they're in Babylon, uh, and it looks like King Nebuchadnezzar's in charge, he's not in charge. God's in charge. And so they're not subjects of Nebuchadnezzar. They're still ultimately subjects of Yahweh, and God's in charge. So the first thing I want you to see as we're going through the chapter five as God being in charge of our missiological lives is number one. I've already kind of hinted towards it, but I want to say it explicitly. You can go ahead and put up number one. Believe we are in exile because we are. And it's all God's plan. Um, You might not think you're in exile, but you are. You're like, what does that even mean? It means if you're a believer in Christ, your citizenship is in heaven. But you are not physically there right now. You're down here. We are ambassadors. We are down here. And our job is to represent the king. We don't, we're not in heaven yet. And so we're, we're down here. In a lot of ways, we're, we're in some kind of bit of exile. You're not exiled because you got kicked out of heaven. That's not what's going on. But in a lot of ways, you're living in a foreign land. And that's where we are. And since we're living in a foreign land, because heaven's our home, we need to really believe it. Like Israel in this day, we are also not living in a theocracy um, and we're not going to. So we have to count this truth through our lives and actually plan and live according to this, that we're going to please God and we're going to obey the, the, the command that we're supposed to make disciples. We therefore should not let ourselves get too comfortable in this particular world. Um, we can run the risk as Christians of finding ourselves super comfortable here on earth. Danny Aiken says this, when we find our feet forcibly planted in the soil of an anti-God, anti-Christian culture, it's absolutely imperative that our hearts be drawn to heaven and our minds be immersed in the word of God. So 
As Colossians 1-2 says, If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, or Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above and not earthly. And so since this is the case of what's really going on in our lives, it's easy for us to get super comfortable here and forget that we are actually exiles. It's God's plan that we are here right now, even though our citizenship is in heaven. So we're to look to him. So God's in control of your missiological life. It's no accident that you are here where you are right now. God has you exactly where he wants you in order to advance his kingdom, in order to make disciples. Every person you come into contact with is a divine appointment by God in front of you. And so believe that. Start living a life that says that, which means your station in life right now, 2021 in South Carolina, everything that's happened has been totally brought, brought um, by God. So since he has us here and not in his physical kingdom yet, we're supposed to live as exiles. As Sinclair Ferguson says, um, Babylon was to be the scene of Daniel's lifelong service to the kingdom of God in the sphere in which he was going to demonstrate to all of Babylon what it was like to quote Psalm 137.4, sing the song, uh, sing the Lord's song in a foreign land. That's what you're here for. You are here to sing the song of Yahweh to this foreign land, to let them know who you belong to. Same for us today. So that's the first thing when you see in the ye- third year of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar. This is Second Kings, by the way, if you want to know where the end of Second Kings 23, end of Second Kings 24, what's going on. Um, Nebuchadnezzar comes in, besieges the land, takes it over, takes their money, and God's like people are, are, are taken out. And all of it was under God's plan. They're exiles, and we are too. Number two, you can go to uh, verse three. As exiles, we must be aware then of the seductive nature of this world. So king of Babylon has a plan. Nebuchadnezzar has a plan of these people he's ripping out of what he's trying to do. And in the same way that he has this plan, our culture will try to throw those things at us, seduce us away from Christ. So um, let's look at it here. Starting in verse 3, you'll see how it happens. And the design, as I said, of the Babylonians to take every vestige of what it means to be a follower of Yahweh out of them. Verse 3, the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, but the royal family and the nobility, youth without blemish, good appearance, skillful, wisdom, uh, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, competence. So he wants to take the biggest, the brightest, the most important people out of there and bring them over to Babylon. The most, the most influential people, the smartest of all of them, and the youngest, because once they're young, they're still majorly impressionable. Bring them all over here. Why would he pick those particular people? Because once he has totally indoctrinated them, bring them back over to these particular people and they just influence the rest of the culture. He doesn't have to do the, the people on the bottom rungs. He just needs to get those top ones. And once they come over here and they're totally thinking like Babylonians, not like followers of God, then everybody else will just follow after them. That's, what's, that's the plan. And so he's wanting to pull them out. And as it says in the end of verse four, to quote unquote, teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Just immerse them into uh, absolute um, paganism. Coerce them, make life easy and comfortable with the king's food and drink. And after he does that, you can see, and change their names. Totally change their identity. They have Hebrew names and identity. These names all mean things that 
that relate to God and he's totally changing them. So you've got Daniel, which means God is my judge, to Belshazzar is may Bel, the God of this God Bel, protect my life now. You've got Hananiah, which means Yahweh is gracious, to Shadrach, which is uh, the command of the moon god Aku is now is who he follows. You've got Mishael, which means is who is what God is. Like no one's what God is to now who is what Aku is, as in like Aku's so awesome. Or Azaria, which is, means Yahweh's my helper, to Abednego, who is now the servant of, the, of Nebo, the wisdom god. So they're, they're changing their Hebrew names, which have these deep meanings, into these pagan names, thus trying to change their entire identity. And so um, as the devil was in charge of the land of Babylon, not in charge, but had some, sim, had some power, he's not in charge, God's in charge. As the devil has some kind of power in Babylon, the devil has some kind of power in our land as well. As it says in 1 Peter 5, 8, he, he goes around like a roaring lion seeking who he can devour. He wants to do that to us here. And so we're commanded, in, therefore, in, in 1 Peter 5, 8, to be sober-minded and watchful. And so I want you to see in verses 3 through 8 uh, here, or 7, the actual ways that the world is trying to seduce us away from Christ. The same way that King of Babylon is trying to seduce these young men away from Yahweh, the world will try to seduce us away from Christ. And I'm pointing these things out so you're on caution. So you're on caution. The first thing is isolation. Grabs them in verse 3 and ships them out. The first thing Babylon wants to do is remove the teenagers from their homeland. Um, the Babylonian strategy of isolation would increase the likelihood of their destruction and deconversion from their faith in the Lord God and their conversion to the worldview of Babylon, Danny Aiken points out, trying to deconvert them. Enticements towards deconversion or enticements towards anything or away from biblical Christianity are evil. There's no other way to say it. They're evil. Anything in our culture that wants to entice us or deconvert us away from, it's evil. It's of the evil one. And um, they are solely meant to seduce you away from Jesus and towards the evil one. And we must notice those things and fight against those things. And fight, this is going to be my little chorus refrain as I'm going through these things. Fight against the seductive nature of the world. Which means if you find yourself isolating yourself away from your church family, then this is the work of the culture to do this. And you will almost guarantee that you'll begin to find yourself enticed towards the sinful pattern of the world. So if isolation is what can happen to pull you towards the culture, the reverse is what you should do. Immerse yourself into your church family. Immerse yourself into your church family. Don't just be uh, here only on Sundays and then we only catch you for four seconds in the lobby before you shout out to your car and we don't see you again until Sunday. Immerse yourself into your church family. Become friends with people here. Do life with people here. Go to a community group here. Be a part of everything that, that you can, according to your job and your life station, to be a part of your church family. Don't isolate. Immerse. That's the first thing that he does in, chapter, in verse 3 when he pulls them all out. Verse 4, he does something else. Indoctrination. Use without blemish, etc. And then it says he wants to, as it says in verse 4, teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The next thing the Babylonian king wants to do is teach them the literature and language. He wants to indoctrinate them. They were to be enrolled now in the Babylonian school of indoctrination for three years. And the point was for them to start thinking like Babylonians. Start thinking like pagans. Not just learn their literature, but stop thinking like an Israelite 
and start thinking like a pagan. Our culture wants us to stop thinking like Christians and start thinking like them. And the University of Babylon had a three-year brainwashing program to train them to start thinking like pagans. And this, this is what our culture is wanting us to do. And if you know to yourself then, therefore, rationalizing and thinking like the world or thinking that pagan ideologies are somewhat helpful or sound okay, then, and they make more sense than the word of God, then you are attending the University of Babylon. You have found yourself way too comfortable with the culture. It can be subtle or obvious. There's some obvious things like this is sinful in the Bible. And they're saying, no, it's not obvious. But there's also subtle things that chip away. And so if indoctrination is what they're trying to do, um, then we want to immerse ourselves in the word of God. Just like we immerse ourselves to fight isolation into the church, we immerse ourselves into the word of God and we know the Bible. We become indoctrinated into Jesus, which is always good. Fight against the seductive nature of the world and the way it wants to make you think. So if we have isolation and indoctrination, we also have assimilation in verse 5. What are they doing? They're offering the king's food and drink. They're wanting them to become hedonists. They're wanting them to see life can be so easy and comfortable. Get comfortable with this culture. Let things be easy for you. Force them completely to immerse themselves in the culture, changing themselves away from Hebrew lifestyle and eat and drink like the Babylonians. Surround them. Now wear them down from their cause of, of any hope of remaining Israelites and surround them with comfort and good times. And these little subtle dangers will be things that turn people away from God and away from living a life from God. Getting, getting easy, uh, getting comfortable with life's little you know, niceties. And so if our outlook on the world and the pagan culture around us is that we've assimilated to the culture and we are enjoying all the comforts and good times. I'm not saying don't enjoy your father's good gifts. I, I know there's a balance between the fact that this world is a gift from the Lord and we can enjoy steak and yummy things like bacon and all those kinds of stuff. I'm not saying that the Lord's creation isn't good. It is. It is good. But it's also a lot of things, because man has corrupted it, massively evil. And we don't want to assimilate into those things. And so we find ourselves thinking like the pagan culture around us and not according to the word of God Then we've assimilated. We've compromised. So if assimilation is what uh, is being called towards to do, then the other thing is don't become like them, but instead become like Christ. Become holy. It's indoctrination. Immerse yourself in holiness. That fights assimilation. And then lastly, what does this pagan king want to do? He doesn't just want to isolate, indoctrinate, and assimilate. He also wants to disorientate them or disreorientate them in a lot of senses. Um, in verse 6 and 7, what is he doing? He's literally changing their names and their identity. Just to make it really simple, he's telling them that their gospel identity of who they are in Christ is not who they are. And they should hold to a different identity. He's literally trying to change their names from followers and designations about how great God is to pagan kings. And so the goal is to move them away from God and toward pagan gods of their new home. And there's tons of pagan gods in this new home that this culture is trying to make you and I bow down to. So if we find so much comfort in this world that our identity has been so shifted, then we have forgotten that our citizenship is in heaven. And so the point of all of these things is this. The way we think, the way we, we think about God, 
about ourselves and about um, others around us and the world and all these things around us. The way we think about these things determines the way we live. What do we think about God? What do we think about idols? What do we think about other people? What do we think about the world? All that determines the way we actually will live. And Nebuchadnezzar, if Nebuchadnezzar could just change the way these people think and start thinking like Babylonians, then he knew that they would start living like Babylonians. And huge caution for us then is God wants us not to do that, but to conform, as 2 Corinthians 10, 5 says, conform, conform every thought to the obedience of Christ. And so we don't want to do that. And so if we want to not be... Uh, isolate, but immerse ourselves in the church, not indoctrinated, but immerse ourselves in the word of God, not assimilate, but immerse ourselves into holiness to fight this disorientation of identity. We want to preach the gospel to ourselves every day and remember who we are in Christ. Remember our identity is in Jesus only in his work on the cross, that because of the cross, you are now declared before God righteous, justified before a holy God. This false identity that's trying to be given you is wrong. The identity you have in Christ is who you are. So fight everything you can against the seductive nature of this world. As exiles, we must be aware of it. Don't walk through this world not realizing that the devil is wanting to absolutely destroy you and me because we love Jesus. Now, not only do we should be aware, we must determine in our minds to do this. Look at Daniel verse 8. Look at these first few words of Daniel 8, 1 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. Daniel was just a ute, as the movie says. He was still young, right? He was 14 ish, maybe. And we know that as we see in. Um, Earlier, the king, look at verse 3. The king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief priest, to bring the king really smart, noble people. And there's four that are going to stand strong for Christ. We don't know what the other ones did. Maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. Who knows? I pray the Lord they did, right? We want everybody to follow God. But we know these particular four do. And it says, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. Point three, as exiles determine that you would not compromise your convictions or commitment to God. He's not going to. Now, what was it about the king's food? We don't know. Like commentators write all over the place that uh, there are certain things. It, it could have been that it was ham and bacon, um, but they taste great. So it, it, maybe it wasn't that. Like we don't know ultimately what it was about the king's food. And it's not really that important about the king's food, um, but the determination to live wholly unto God is the more important thing. Daniel said, I'm not going to defile myself. So this three-year Babylonian university has been set up for him. He's a young fella. He's not one of the old guys. He's 14 saying, I'm standing up for God from the beginning. Day one of university, three years, I'm going to stand up for God. What you going to do? What you going to do, Nebby? Like nothing you can do. I'm standing up for God. That's Nebuchadnezzar. And so uh, if you've seen the VeggieTales. So the three-year Babylonian university set up for them. Nebuchadnezzar wants to wear them down. I have eight kids. Sorry. That's why I quote veggie tales here and there. Um, so his goal is to isolate them, indoctrinate them, assimilate them, and change their identity. And before anything happens, we see the resolve and strength of a young, young fella Daniel saying, before Ebenezer can even, Nebuchadnezzar even start this program, I've decided I'm going to trust the Lord. I've decided I'm going to trust the Lord. Here you are right now. Resolve, I'm going to trust the Lord. 
who knows how much longer we have? And so when we're looking at this third point, the first thing I want you to see is right there in verse 8. Resolve early to live for Christ. Daniel resolved at a very young age. Sinclair Ferguson notes about Daniel's resolution here. He says, without those early steps of faithfulness, these four uh, to the Lord, there would be no record of their later heroism. These things bring them to what the Lord's going to do in them. He says he's not going to defile himself. He resolved early that he would not compromise as an exile. He wanted to live wholly unto God. Babylon was where he was going to live, but Babylon was not going to be his home. His home was still with the Lord. South Carolina, is, America is where you live. It should not be your home. Your citizenship is in heaven. That's where your home is. Sinclair Ferguson says, it's not you, it's not who you are or where you are that ultimately matters in the kingdom of God. It's what you are. Faithfulness, not reputation or situation, is what really ultimately counts in the kingdom of God. Jesus calls us to holiness. And here's the, don't miss this, right? He calls you to holiness and he doesn't say, so get after it and white knuckle it. Here's the best thing about the gospel. Jesus calls us to holiness because he has supplied it to us in the gospel. Philippians 1.6, he who began of work, good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. You will be glorified. Philippians 3.16, only let us hold true to what we have already attained. What is that? You and I, if we're in Christ, have been completely justified, declared holy. No, there's still sanctification. We still have to pursue holiness, right? But we do that as Philippians 2, 11, 12 says, with the Lord, us working together. And so hold true to this because it has been fully supplied to you in the gospel. And so he asked the chief priest in 8b, Therefore, he asked the chief priests of the eunuchs to not allow him to defile himself. I don't think he did this obstinately. I think he did this winsomely. I don't think he was being disrespectfully. He said he doesn't want to do it. And as we see, it was, this request was received in a good way. See in verse 9, chapter 1. Uh, I meant to show you this. Look at verse 2. The Lord gave. Verse 2. Look at verse 9. God gave. Look at verse 17. As for these four use, God gave. That's a pretty uh, important intentional repetition thing that, that he's doing in the Hebrew to help you understand things might look bleak, but nothing's happening without God making it happen. God's in charge. All right, back to it. Here we see Daniel asks this favor, but he's asking to somebody who actually has compassion and favor on him. But, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuch. So he says like, hey, I don't want to eat this food. Uh, it defiles us before our Lord. So don't make me eat it. Now, this particular guy, uh, like most of us, likes to have his head attached to his body. And so he's like, hey, you know, I like you. But if I do this for you, then the king's going to chop my head off. And I don't really want that to happen. And so please don't ask me again. I like you, but my answer is no. And so Daniel's like, okay. So he just takes it one step down the rung of importance. Instead of asking the chief of the eunuchs, he just goes to the servant. You can see it right there. Um, and the chief of the eunuch said to Daniel, I fear my Lord who assigned me your food and drink. Why should I see that you're in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? Should you endanger my head with the king? In other words, you'd get weak. These other dudes would look strong. The king would notice it. No thanks. 
And so Daniel just didn't give up there. He's not like, well, I guess I should just take this at what it is. Look what he does in verse 11. Daniel said to the steward. He's like, okay, one step down to the steward of the chief of the eunuchs who had assigned over Daniel, Hanash, Michelle, Azariah. Test your servants. He just goes down, one down and says, hey, I don't want to eat this food. Here's an idea. The other guy said, no, watch me for 10 days. And what's over the 10 days? I'm, you give me vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then look at our appearance and see if it's just like the rest of the youth, uh, the people that eat the king's food, and then deal with us accordingly. So he didn't give up here. Um, now, just want to make sure we understand what's going on. We don't, like I said, uh, we don't know exactly what it was about the Daniel's food that Daniel didn't like and how it would defile. And there's no reason to speculate. It could be a whole lot of other things. But what we do know for certain is, and the main point is, uh, it's not so much about the food, but it's the determination to live holy unto God. I'm going to live holy unto God in this place of exile. And so I'm going to tell him, hey, I don't want to eat this. The guy says no. And instead of just saying, well, I quit, the guy said no. We should also, this is kind of the second thing on number three, not just resolve to live for Christ early, but prepare for adversity. Daniel has adversity here. What does he do? He doesn't give up. He stays strong. He's going to stay strong here and say, okay, you're not going to tell me yes. I'm going to go to the next guy. And I'm going to keep trusting God and see if this next guy will say yes. And so even though he's told no at first, he goes to him and he says, hey, you know, I just want to eat vegetables. Let me pause here. This is not um, written here so that Rick Warren could make a diet in 2018 or whenever he made the Daniel plan. Uh, It's not a diet plan. Uh, As a matter of fact, just to blow everybody's mind, uh, in the Hebrew, this vegetables is really more like seeded food. So it couldn't just be vegetables. It's probably also seeds that make bread and even fruit. And so, sorry, Rick, if you're watching, I know you're not. It's vegetables, fruit, and bread. And so it's not just vegetables. Don't plan your diet on the Daniel plan. Uh, You need protein. All right, back to it. All right, so anyway, um, so Daniel doesn't give up. Instead, he's going to stay strong here, and he's going to say, uh, even though going down the rung might cause me a little risk, in life to want to stay true, I'm going to stay strong here. Hudson Taylor says, unless there's an element of extreme risk in our exploits for God, there's no need for faith. What do you need to trust God for if everything's fine all the time? Adversity comes, I'm going to trust God here. And this is where I really need to. So extreme risk here to to go down a rung and ask the next guy. But what does the guy do? Um, The guy says, yes. Some commentators said probably because he got the meat himself. He's like extra meat for me. You got it. We don't know that for sure. Um, But adversity came, and it's always going to come. Just as adversity came in their lives, it's going to come in you and your life. And when it does, don't just give up and say, oh, well, stay strong for the Lord. Now, when I say stay strong, I'm not just kind of promoting like the Lance Armstrong cancer fighting thing where you cheat and, you know, you beat everybody in biking or whatever. That's not what I'm talking about. When I say stay strong, I mean something much more than that. I'm trying to say um, when hard things come in your life, say, no matter what, I'm going to resolve in my mind to live for Christ and I'm going to trust him through this. So stay strong means ultimately I'm saying look to Christ, trust Christ, trust, trust everything that's been offered to you in the gospel and praise the Lord whenever he delivers you from it. So it's a determination to say I'm not going to compromise for the cause of Christ. Now, tested him for 10 days and what happened? At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the other ones that were eating the king's food. Only God can do that. So God does it. They don't compromise. God blesses it. And so the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and just gave them the the seeded food and water. And that's what they had. And because the Lord blessed it, we can see that um, 
they stayed strong and they didn't walk away from living for Yahweh. They didn't become immersed into, uh, they didn't become immersed into this culture. If there was anything, they already been moved and maybe Daniel's like, all right, you've taken away everything from me. I'm not going to eat your food. I got to have something where I'm still holding on to who I am in, in God. Maybe it's that, but we don't know. Uh, but nevertheless, he determined that he wasn't going to disobey. He was going to stay strong for the cause of the Lord. Sinclair Ferguson says, those who see their chief end as bringing glory to God know that they will never be disappointed. And that's what's going on with Daniel. And it's the truth for us. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You will never be disappointed by living according to that. That's what you're here for, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So the application as we're finishing number three is God gave his only son to us. And there is for us, like there was for Daniel, a massive unending reservoir of grace being offered to us in Christ and by Christ in the gospel. So praise the Lord. There's grace for them as they stand strong. And as we walk through this world and pursue Christ, it's possible because of Jesus. So it's in Christ and it's by Christ. And as we fail, there's grace in the gospel to continually forgive us. And remember, 1 John, uh, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the good news of the gospel that's been offered to us. And so praise the Lord. Now we get to verse four, or the fourth one here about God being in control of our missiological lives is this. Uh, as exiles, know the day will come when you need to speak clearly the gospel of those before you. After three, day, after three years, they rose to the top of their class, but they didn't compromise. And because they were awesome and smart, and that's all from God. It's not they're awesome. Like God, God helped them. They are before the king, and they have an opportunity before the king to speak about God. Verse 17, as for these four years, God gave them learning and skill and literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all these visions and dreams. So they rose to the top of their class. They're number one, two, three, and four. And at the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in. Look at this. Before Nebuchadnezzar and the king spoke with them among all those, nobody was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Because of their obedience, they actually had a place to speak about God before the king. You will not necessarily speak to, you know, huge people in government situations. But you will be before people. Every day, as you're walking through life, there are going to be people that are going to come in your life. All the difficulty that these four boys had, had faced thus far, being pulled from their homeland, forced into a new culture, being forced to stand up for God, not defiling themselves, not compromising their conditions, uh, uh, convictions, all of these hardships brought them to a certain closeness that they had to rely on God they had to trust God completely that they would have never experienced this closeness to God had they not gone through those hardships. And because they went through the hardships and they stayed close, God's mercy had reached them in a massively strong way. And because it had reached them, it had given them an opportunity now to reach through them to stand before people that don't know Christ and testify to, about Yahweh. Same thing for us. The things that you're going through in life they have happened to you so that the mercy of God can come to you, but also not just come to you, but now reach through you. God making his appeal through us, as 2 Corinthians 5 say, be reconciled to God. Make disciples. Tell people about Christ. You, 
and I are going to have unending opportunities as, as part of our missiological lives in exile to have people sovereignly placed before us as the old little phrase that says, divine appointments that God has put in front of you to testify about the greatness of our King Jesus just as they had an opportunity to testify about their King Yahweh. And we have an opportunity to talk about Christ and his gospel. And we are commanded to make disciples. And so as you walk through this world and people come to you who don't know Christ, the little saying about, you know, preach the gospel always and when impossible, use words. You have to. There is no preach the gospel without words. The Bible's clear over and over. You have to tell people about Jesus. And talk now. If you're like, okay, that makes me nervous. I don't even know how to do that. Then talk to me. Let's sit down and talk through how you can know how to proclaim the gospel. But if you're scared to talk to me, and I'm, I'm not scary, um, here's the easiest thing, right? How did you get saved? Tell them that. If that's all you got, the Lord will use it. I promise you. The Holy Spirit takes broken, messed up tries. If you can speak through donkeys, you can speak through us. Broken, messed up tries to tell somebody the gospel and they can get saved. I've seen really poor presentations and God save a whole bunch of people and really, really winsome poetic presentations and nothing happens. Because it's the Holy Spirit that's doing it. It's not up to me how great I can talk. Praise the Lord. So um, you're going to have and I'm going to have all kinds of opportunities. And so um, as those opportunities come, speak clearly. Dale Ralph Davis says it this way. Sometimes God allows hardships to reach us because he wants his mercy to reach beyond us. As we we receive mercy, it goes beyond us to those that we have opportunities to hear. And so um, speak the gospel clearly. I'll just ask this one application question. Who do you need to tell the gospel this week? Who is it specifically that you know I could tell them the gospel this week? Write their name down and next week look at your notes and see if you did. You're not in trouble with God or anything, but you should. You should tell them. All right, so that gets us to verse 20 when he says, in every matter of wisdom and understanding about what the king inquired, he found them 10 times better. Maybe the 10 times better than the other classes because he had 10 days of, of testing, 10 and 10, who knows. Uh, and then the magicians and enchanters, of course, because magicians and enchanters are fakers, uh, that are in his kingdom. Stop. We would think the chapter would end there, but Daniel throws this one little extra line in. It's not a throwaway sentence, but it's awesome. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Like, all right, who's that? Great. This is how awesome it is right here, all right? This is where um, the word of God's awesome. So Daniel, in one verse, fast forwards about 65 years later. He goes from 605, just went from like early years to late. And he's trying to tell us something. What is Daniel up to? He's trying to say this. Um, king Cyrus, by the way, the king of Persia, not Babylon. You know what happened? Here's what happened. Mighty Babylon has fallen. There's a new king in town, Cyrus of Persia, and he's taking over. Now, what's going on to? He's trying to help us see mighty Babylon talked about in verses 1 and 2 has fallen. And namely, King Cyrus of Persia has taken over in 439. And the whole point is this. Earthly kings, you know what they do? They come and go. They die. That's what they do. But you know what never, as they rise and fall, you know what never changes? Jesus is always on the throne. He is King of King and Lord of Lords forever. And so Daniel's trying to say here when he's doing this, God's people go on. So as exiles, God will sustain us during our entire missiological lives. Who knows what's going to happen? 
where we live over and over. He endures, so we endure. He sustains. What's the point here? He's trying to show you this big, larger truth in verse 21, which is God sustains. Where's Babylon? Gone. That's where it is. Where's Daniel? God's in charge. God will simply endure every single kingdom. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Every kingdom of this age will die. God outlasts all kings. And so therefore, he sustains us. He is our only hope. That's the point that he's trying to point out in 2 and 21. Your entire missiological life is up and down as it'll be. You will be sustained because of Jesus Christ. So I want to conclude this way. I want us to help us in John chapter 5, I think it's verse 36 or 37 or 38. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he says, you search uh, thinking that in them that you're going to have life. They testify about me. In other words, every verse in the Bible is about me. Every verse in the Bible is not a moral lesson. And so it's easy when you read the, especially the Old Testament, to just think, here's moral lessons to live your life. And I don't want to finish or ever have gone through this without, hopefully, I've been pointing you to the gospel the entire time. But I want to make it super explicit. (laughs) Anytime you read the Old Testament, you should read any verse in the Bible in the Old Testament and say, where's Jesus? Just, where's Jesus? And anytime you read the New Testament, any verse in the Bible, you should say, where's the gospel of Jesus? That's the whole point of reading the Bible. So I want to explicitly help us see that Jesus is the truer and better Daniel. How all of this in Daniel 1 foreshadows Jesus Christ. It's subtle, but all the Bible's about Jesus. Sometimes it's obvious, like Daniel 7. But in in Daniel 1, just like the four Hebrew children were sent to a foreign land, Christ was sent to a foreign land, namely earth, and he emptied himself and left heaven and came and dwelt among us. Just as the four kids bore witness about God in Babylon, Christ came to earth, this place, in our Babylon, to bear witness about the one true God. Like Daniel found favor in the sight of, of the chief of the eunuchs, Jesus found favor with, with God and man. And even the teachers were amazed at his understanding and his answers when he was young, like them. Like Daniel refused to defile himself with the king's food, Jesus did not sin and refused to defile himself when Satan tempted him with food. And he refused to defile himself by never sinning, not just once, but ever, therefore making him the perfect sacrifice for sin, for our sin, namely. Like the four were witnesses before Ashpenaz and Nebuchadnezzar, Jesus was also a faithful witness before Herod and Pilate and eventually by them would be nailed to a cross and his death purchases for all of us who trust in him. And that... Because he was before the king and bore witness, Jesus was the king of kings who was nailed to the cross. And he is now the king of kings and lords and lords forever. And he eternally took our place. And so we will eternally live in his palace forever. Jesus took all the judgment that was for Israel and all the judgment we deserved on the cross, defeated Satan, sin, and death completely for us. And now all empires bow down to his eternal purposes and his eternal empire forever. That's what the book of Daniel chapter 1 is pointing us to the greatness of Jesus Christ. God is in control of our missiological lives and it's all for Jesus Christ's glory. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this book um, of scripture, this particular chapter that points us ultimately to Christ and teaches us how to live as exiles here, how to live for your glory here. We thank you, God, and we pray that as all, we've looked at all these things that we would take these things up because you're worthy and you're glorious, because you have declared us righteous in the gospel and because of Jesus Christ and his gospel, we deeply desire to do this. And so Lord, I pray that you would help us. Thank you for the good news of Christ. Thank you for the Lord's Supper that points us to the good news of Christ.
And I pray that as we turn to you at the table, Lord, that we would preach the gospel in Jesus' name. Amen.